tired of Earth. We are no one. These people. We are everyone. Tired of being caught in the tangle of their lives. And we are invisible. They claim their labors are to build a heaven. Yet their heaven is populated with horrors. Perhaps the world is not made. Perhaps nothing is made. A clock without a craftsman. Always late. It's too late. Always has been. Always will be. Too late. Hello and welcome to the one and only episode of Still Watching Watchmen. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. We are covering, we're going to be talking about the HBO, the new HBO series Watchmen on this podcast, still watching. Usually we cover entire seasons of television at the time, at a time, but there's so much going on this fall that we're sort of taking things a little differently. So this is our one and only opportunity. I don't know. I don't want to promise that. Maybe, maybe we'll revisit it later, but as far as our plan is right now, this is the time where Richard and I are going to talk about the HBO series Watchmen which is an adaptation of the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, uh iconic graphic novel from the 80s, Watchmen. Uh, we are here, we are only going to be discussing season one, episode one. Uh, it's summer and we're running out of ice. Um, and, you know, we are not going to spoil beyond that, even though some of us may have seen more. Uh, we're just going to be talking about that. We're really excited to talk to you about this. We've got a great interview for this episode. I'm so excited. The great Tim Blake Nelson uh, is here to talk about his character. He plays Looking Glass. Uh, so he's here to talk about that and some other stuff that he's got going on this fall. So it's going to be a great episode. Tim Blake Nelson is here. Richard Lawson's here. Joanna Robinson's here. Here we go. Watchmen. Uh, Richard, what is your relationship with uh, Watchmen previous to this uh, episode of television? Uh, well, when the movie was announced, the, the movie, the, the Zack Snyder movie came out in 2009, um, it was announced obviously like well before the release. And so I did a little bit of research. I didn't actually read the comic uh, or the graphic novel rather, um, but it intrigued me. I, I liked the idea of an alternate timeline uh, for world history, American history in particular. Um, I liked that it wasn't involving superheroes that i was familiar with you know um the movie left something to be desired though it has its its strong points for sure um but i liked the idea of it i like the world of it i like um the way that it's uh both satire of american sort of identity and history while also probing things a bit more sort of somberly and deeply um so yeah the, the idea of a tv show about the centered on this particular ip was interesting. And then there's the Damon Lindelof factor, uh, who did, he did such a good job with a weird job with the leftovers for HBO a few years ago. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I'm intrigued. I mean, you, you know a bit more about Watchmen than I do, I, I believe. Well, just in that, I mean, I have read the, the source material. Um, the, the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, uh, graphic novel, which came out in the late eighties. And, uh, it's, it's a really interesting examination of, 
the superhero comic book genre. And, uh, and it's a re, it was a reaction to the Reagan era, sort of, and the Cold War. That's, that's what they're writing about in that book. And so what a lot of questions that people had around this new series is like, is this a remake? Is this a reboot? Is this, what is this? And Damon Lindelof, who, as you said, did such a great job with the leftovers, uh, also one of the, the co-creators of Lost, um, he he wrote this great letter that's up on his Instagram page, and I encourage you guys to read it. He posted it like, I don't know, I want to say a little over a year ago. So you'll have to sort of scroll back past uh, some fish nun memes from Star Wars. Lindelof's Instagram is a joy, so you should just follow him anyway. But he's got this letter that he put on Instagram, basically like, why me? Why Watchmen? Because it's such a beloved property and like Lindelof knows a thing or two about like, uh, over engaged fandoms and navigating them. And so he's like, I get it. You're mad that I'm doing this or you're mad that this is even happening or whatever. He's like, well, here's why I'm doing it. What it means to me. And he called it in that, in that letter, he called it a remix, which is not to say, they're taking whatever happened in the comic book that is canon that happened. And then this is sort of like, okay, what if years later, what would Watchmen look like years later? This, so it's like a sequel. It's a sequel basically, but I think they're not calling it out of deference, deference to Alan Moore, who famously hates every single filmed adaptation of his work. Alan Moore did like from hell and like a bunch of others, you know, and like basically anything that's ever been made of his comics, he's hated. So I think they're not calling it a sequel sort of out of, out of deference to Alan Moore. They're calling it a remix, but um, there are, you will see characters from the original comic in this story older um, it's definitely a sequel to the comic book, not to the movie, because the squid shower that we'll talk about in this, in this, uh, premiere episode, that's from the book, but it was cut from the Zack Snyder movie. So this is, a, this is like a continuation of the book story. And what the book is mostly preoccupied with is what does the governmental power structures that we currently are navigating, you know, what does it, what, do what are the lies what are the half truths that are necessary to keep a power structure intact and who has the authority to to govern to rule and this great phrase that comes out of the title watchman is who watches the watchman right like who like okay if you have someone in authority who is making sure that they are not abusing that authority so as aretha franklin uh, once asked who's zoom and who <laughs> so the uh the this show takes place in a world where um there's something called the keen act and i i promise not to get like too much lost in the weeds of the comic book there's something called the keen act um which bans masked vigilante justice right so you're not allowed to be a mass vigilante, which is, you know, the main, the original Watchmen characters were mass vigilantes in, in the vein of Batman, et cetera. This is sort of who Alan Moore is interrogating. Um, but in this world that, that Lindelof is presenting to us, the masked superhero-esque figures are the cops. Only the cops are allowed to do this. 
Uh, and then you've got other masked figures in these, in this terrorist groups that, that are the Rorschach groups that are inspired by a character, uh, in the original comic book. So this is a new Watchmen in terms of like the Watchmen of the Cops. And that is exactly one of the very sensitive subjects that Lindelof is taking on head on and his writer's room, we should say. It's a very diverse, like, racially gender wise uh background rise writer's room so it's not just like this white man damon lindelof and his take on like race relations and the cops uh in in 2019 but um he's he's taking on police violence and and terrorism and racism that's what's those are the light topics that damon lindelof has decided to treat uh in this comic book show so um here we go watchmen did that did that set the stage, Richard? Mm-hmm. Do yeah, we, are no, we all no. on the same page here? Yeah, no, it okay. for sure clarified some things because this is a pretty confusing hour of television. It really is. And it's ve- it's like um it's so weird. And I, I love it. Um because I'm a huge musicals fan and I'm a huge fan of Watchmen. And so when you bang uh the musical Oklahoma together with some weird and wonderful, uh, superhero comic book stuff, then, uh, I'm, I'm enormously pleased. I'm worried this will not find a wide audience, but like, maybe that's okay that it doesn't. I don't know. You know, maybe it will. Who knows? But, um, yeah. So do we want to, do we want to run down it sort of like beat by beat? Yeah. I feel like that makes the most sense. Cause I feel like I'm, I'm, I count myself among them. There will be people, uh, who are, pretty confused about some of the visuals and and illusions and all that. So yeah, I think if we kind of just go through it, um, that'll help me at least. So I'd be grateful. Excellent. So this, this uh, episode is written by Damon Lindelof. We should say directed by Nicole Castle, who directed uh, a number of episodes this season. She's also an executive producer on the show. So like she's enjoying the same Lindelof is, is rare, a rare showrunner. That uh, the kind of creative partnerships that he likes to have with his directors are often he picks a director and makes them like a basically a co showrunner with him. Uh, this is true of Mimi Leader on The Leftovers. This is true of Jack Bender on Lost, uh, and is true of Nicole Castle, uh, who did the great film The, the Woodsman. Uh, with Kevin Bacon, that was like this. I think it was like a Sundance hit. Anyway, I was, it's a it's a great film, very dark. Uh, and so she's sort of his partner in crime for this, which is really fun. Um, but she directed this episode, and it opens um, in 1921 in Tulsa with this real world event that happened. Like a lot of what we're seeing in the show is alternate history, but the 1921 Tulsa riots, which is also known as Black Wall Street. Um, is a real event that happened. Um, so Richard, like what was your, what was your understanding of what was going on, uh, in this opening, uh, sequence? Um, I, I understood it to be a, a, you know, an actual historical thing. Um, you know, I think that unfortunately, uh, you know, mob violence against black people in America, lynchings and whatnot have been, uh, a topic of conversation of late. Uh, and I've read some people, you know, making the important historical clarification that we tend to think of like Emmett Till or other instances where, you know, 
a black man or boy was, you know, accused of raping or otherwise sexually assaulting a white woman. And then he, you know, the mob would come for him and, and murder him, um, which certainly did happen. But a lot of lynching and, and, um, you know, violence against black people at, you know, around the turn of the century and, and, and was, was, was economically related. It was about white people trying to steal land from black people in the South. It was about, well, in this case, you know, uh, tearing down a thriving economy, uh, in Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, that just kind of further, uh, you know, sort of explains the, the broad and still ongoing system of economic oppression tied to violence uh, experienced by black people in America. And for the show to open with this kind of uh, lovely dreamy imagery of this, you know, a kid watching a movie about, uh, you know, uh, with a, a black hero in the silent film, uh, but then to have it tumble into terrible violence, like that's a pretty bold opening statement, I would say. Right. And this idea of like, he's, so this kid is watching this serial, this sort of black and white serial. Um, and it's sort of like trust in the law. Like, like you can trust the lawmen. And then we cut to this just utterly chaotic, nightmarish chapter of American history where this I- incredibly wealthy black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you see all these like, uh, it's not just the, the violence of the, people in this scene which is awful to watch it's also the violence against the businesses all along the street Mm -hmm. you know you just see like all these businesses bombed out and you know and all this this you know just this infrastructure that this community has built for itself just decimated on you know and it happens on the ground it happens via air attack and this is all accurate and true of what happened in 1921 in tulsa um John Legend, I believe, is working on a film adaptation of this story. Like, we'll get, we'll get, uh, I think in the near future, we'll get some uh, more art about this particular time in U.S. history because it is on a lot of people's minds given a lot of the conversations we're having around, uh, racism, whether it ever, ever went away <laughs> in the U.S. Guess what? It didn't. Um, and so to revisit this, like, very ugly chapter, um, in our lives, this, episode opens with like imagery of lynching and ends with a lynching. Uh, and so that's just sort of where we are. Welcome to Watchmen. Um, but it ends with, you know, this kid holding, you know, he, you know, he tries to escape. His mom is killed. All of his protectors are killed. Um, there's a note in his pocket that says like, watch over this boy. Um, uh, but there's no one to watch over, like who watches, over, like there's no one to watch over him. Uh, and it's, mm-hmm. he picks up this baby who's wrapped in a blanket that looks like the American flag and like holds it. And then you get this really cool uh, rear projections. I don't know. That's not the term. I don't know what it is, but like you get the title of the episode, which is a quote from a, a line from a song from Oklahoma summer and we're running out of ice, which is about a dead preserving a dead body. Um, like up behind him, which gives it a very cool, like uh comic book feel the way the font hangs there behind him. Uh mm-hmm. And the yellow is iconically Watchmen and the font is iconically Watchmen. So that's like, this is a very not Watchmen event, but it's, um but it's got these trappings of Watchmen about it. So uh there we are. And then we cut to the now uh that we're in. Um, which is a very uh not our now not our now. now now so this is the alternate history yeah. so uh in the original Watchmen comics um the one of the major historic changing events is that like Watergate doesn't happen 
Like Nixon thwarts Watergate and he also changes the law so that term limit laws so that he's allowed to be in power for a long time. So it's like, uh, you know, let's forget about Reagan being in power because he doesn't come to power. Let's think about what America would look like under Nixon for an extended period of time. If you want to talk about abuse of power, right? And what Lindelof decided to do is he's like, okay, so what the original Washington is about the extended reign of President Nixon. President Redford then takes over and President Redford, Robert Redford, the actor. Uh, and, and like, that's a great choice. That's, that's from a continuation comic too, but that's a great choice, right? Cause you could see Robert Redford, who's so politically minded, like could definitely have become president probably if he wanted to. Um, an actor becoming president in what? the 80s? What are you talking about? Never. Um, what, what would happen under the long reign of a liberal president? And so that's sort of like what we're looking at here, which is like, there's this concept of redfordation, which is like reparations. But we, we open with this, um, traffic stop, this cop stopping, uh, a car, which is a, a, a site that those of us who have watched a lot of, I don't know, cell phone captured traffic stops are like kind of are, are fairly familiar with, but there's a few, new alternate history wrinkles, right? Like that you have, if you're a cop, you have to call headquarters in order to get your gun unlocked. And if you're Mm -hmm. a cop, you have to sort of say like, this is being recorded. Do you consent to this being recorded? These are like a couple things. Um, And if you're a cop, you're wearing a mask. You're wearing a mask and it's, it's creepy. And we'll find out why they're wearing masks in a little bit, but it's creepy. And, uh, the, and then we should note that the, the races of the individuals here is a white man in a truck and a black man, uh, wearing the, the cop uniform, uh, which is the reverse of a lot of these, like, traffic stops gone wrong that we've watched through cell phone footage and stuff like that. So, um, what do you, what it, like, how did, how did this scene strike you, Richard? Well, there begins my, I'm extending the benefit of the doubt to Lindelof and Castle and the rest of the team creating the show. Um, because, you know, the leftovers was kind of a slow burn to get where it was really going. Right. And then it became something pretty thrilling. Um, but I think the leftovers was also contending with maybe less fraught, um, subject matter and optics. Um, yep. so this scene is where I started, start questioning the, I guess, value of the, oftentimes throughout the rest of the episode, the, I I hate to put it this kind of crassly, but the role reversal um, in terms of American power structures and dynamics. um, You know, I I, I did think about the, I believe now scuttled Weiss and Benioff show that was going to (laughs) be roughly imagining if the, you know, the civil war had been lost or the union had lost the civil war. Um, and it's like, okay, I guess there's sort of a noodly, vaguely interesting thought experiment to be done, but it also, I don't know. I, 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 I'm curious what people are going to think about the way this, this, this opening episode, um, considers that dynamic and, and shifts it for dramatic purposes. Um, I just, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the, if the thematic justification is there yet, but I think this is also just a pilot episode. So I'm very curious to see how they kind of justify it and where they, where they take it. 
So this 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 sort of exact unease that you mentioned here was raised at the Television Critics Association summer press tour that I attended earlier this year. Um, Eric Diggins, who's a great um, you know culture writer and um, broadcaster for NPR, uh, also a black man, like raised this question of like, are you asking me? Are you asking me to sympathize with the cops here? And also to say his his point is that if you just take this episode by itself, which you, Richard, say are saying we probably shouldn't, and Damon Lindelof at TCA said, please don't just take this episode by itself. Um, this is a TV show, like we have more to tell. But um is saying like uh, Eric's point was the institutional race, the racism that is a plague on our society currently is inextricably linked with our police force. Um, and this we know from great investigative reporting in terms of like the ways in which the Klan have infiltrated, um, the, the police force. And so Eric was saying like, you can't, you can't say, okay, here are the white, the shitty Rorschach mask wearing white supremacists and here are cops and they're separate when, um, when those two institutions, if you really want to examine, you know, police force and white supremacy in America, those things are linked. They're not on opposite sides of any kind of fight. And, um, Charles Pulliam Moore, IO9, uh, had a, like, sort of a similar take outside of, uh, New York Comic Con. I will say very quickly, very quickly in episode two, uh, all, all questions about whether or not this show will address that are, uh, you can put them aside. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know that that's an annoying thing to hear in this day and age of too much TV. And if you are personally offended by this, uh, episode, um, I, I am not gonna, you know, tell you, <laughs> you know, how to feel, but I will say that if you have the patience. Or to subject yourself to another, <laughs> yeah. I absolutely. Mean, if, you, not. if you don't want to watch more, don't watch more. Don't but watch like, more. Absolutely. You're saying not. that there is, yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. I'm just saying very quickly. It's not like you have to wait till episode six. I'm saying very quickly. Right. So, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So the, the, we, we get this exchange. Um, as you say, it, it feels interesting and uneasy. Um, and you really do have to, you want to, uh, you and I both want to give this show the benefit of the doubt that it's going to like really engage, uh, with these very hot button issues that it's raising right away. So, um, this cop gets shot because he can't pull his gun out fast enough, uh, cause it, you know, the regulations have it locked. He gets shot. It turns out that the guy he stopped was just transporting lettuce. Um, but he also, also seems to be part of this militia. Like both is, both seem to be true. Right. So. And he throws, he throws a head of lettuce into the car. I believe it was Romaine. <laughs> Romaine. As a sort of symbol of something that they kind of reference later, right? I think it's just sort of like a fuck you. I was transporting lettuce. Like it was lettuce, oh, you see. asshole. That was my right. interpretation of it. Um, and then we cut to our second Oklahoma, the musical reference of the episode. There will be four. Uh, this is number two. This is what, uh, Don Johnson's character, Chief Judd, refers to as, or no, actually, uh, Regina King's character refers to as Black Oklahoma. Um, and, uh, it's delightful. What do you, what did you make of this musical interview, interlude, uh, Richard? 
Well, I mean, it felt very timely given that like sexy Oklahoma just took yes. off Broadway and then Broadway by storm um, and uh, had us who were fortunate enough to see it sort of mm, reassessing and maybe further appreciating that show's legacy in the American canon. Um, the, 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 the sexy production sort of unearths a deep, uh, perhaps howling American darkness, uh-huh. uh, that the, the, the sunniness of the show, of the, the, you know, the, the movie, um, uh, kind of eschews, uh-huh. uh, cause it's a dark show in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I think also then to have this meta thing of a show that, it, you know, a television series that is seemingly, um, doing some, you know, maneuvering of, of, uh, you know, optics and, 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 and switching roles or whatever to then have that it, something within that the series that, that is also doing that, like this, you know, all black production of Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think it's daring and I think it's an example of Lindelof loving these sort of esoteric things that are, you know, clearly just like, tumbling around in his mind and and hopefully then using them to thematically thread throughout the show um which is you know another reason why i'm intrigued i mean the the heavy leaning on the oklahoma stuff is 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 weird and 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 and, and, and pretty bold for a, a big hbo pilot you know yeah it's super weird and i really really love it um we should say that the show you know the the it opens with the Tulsa riots. It's set in Oklahoma as well. So like, you know, the, 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 the present day alternative history stuff is set in Oklahoma as well. So, um, you know, here we are, uh, for the season, but yeah, it, it's, it's like by the time the second, this, this second Oklahoma reference rolled around, I was like, okay. And the fact that they hit it a couple times more before they close out, I mean, it's just like, yeah, you're Lindelof, uh, you know, and, and once again, I don't want to give like old soul attribution to him because he really does have a, a quite collaborative writer's room, but the kind of stories he likes to tell, at least with the leftovers, um, yeah, is, is plucking out these, odd cultural touchstones and then like making us re-examine or rethink like i think of this is a this is a weird example but i think in terms of the leftovers i always think of um like perfect strangers i don't know if you remember this mm-hmm. but like yeah. that, that oh, was time, like yeah. that's a thing that like he, you know and you're just sort of like oh huh what's interesting is i i interviewed nicole castle a ways back and i asked her if they had like heard of or seen sexy oklahoma or oklahoma that fucks whatever you want to call it uh, you know, when they considered using it, she's like, no, that was a coincidence. Like we had already put Oklahoma through this, uh, before that production was like on our radar. So, um, but I think they're both doing similar things. If my understanding of that production of Oklahoma is correct, I have not seen it, but, um, re-examining our foundational American myths sort of thing. Is that sound right yeah and also looking at the the how violence is always at the center of those myths Mm -hmm. and uh and and sort of looking at it through a a contemporary lens yeah um so uh the chichet character played by don johnson is pulled out of this production because of the shooting of one of his cops um and we we are introduced to tim blake nelson's character uh looking glass who has my the uh, the character designs of these like watchman figures uh, are all great, but the looking glass, uh, design is my favorite. He wears this mirrored, um, mask and there are times when he like pulls them up so you can like, so Tim Blake Nelson can like talk. Um, this, this 
cop who was shot, like his own identity is a secret. So needing to take him to the hospital and keep him secret is this whole part of it. But then there's also just this like light touches of humor, like the chief judge character being like, pull, pull your mask down basically so I can use your mask as a, as a mirror to like adjust my, mm-hmm. adjust myself. I mean, it's just like, well, cause he very, yeah. Yeah. He very pointedly does wear his full uniform and like is like a sort of seeming public right. face of the police force. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And then we get this scene where Chief Judd goes to talk to, uh, this, this slain cop or, or shot. He's not dead. Uh, this, the shot cop, Charlie's, uh, wife and this, and we get some exposition via the, via the, uh, this like, uh, you know, emotional grieving process scene of like the amount of secrecy that these cops have to go through, uh, in order to protect their identity. Mm-hmm. We get a glimpse of the fact that Dr. Manhattan is on Mars and that's, you know, that's a reference to this character from the original comics, uh, who basically left, left the earth cause it was just too much, uh, for him. He's like, maybe I'll go find life elsewhere, basically. Um, so, uh, Dr. Manhattan is out there in this universe. Um, and then we get to, uh, the star of the show. Like the star of the show is not mm-hmm. Don Johnson. It's not Tim Blake Nelson. It's not anyone else we've met. It's, uh, newly minted Oscar winner, Regina Effing King, uh, who is, who's so great and everything. She plays Detective Angela Abar and the, like her Watchmen character is Sister Knight. And, uh, she's so great and everything. Obviously she won, uh, the Oscar last year, but, um, I I think my favorite work she's ever done was for Lindelof on The Leftovers. So I'm mm-hmm. so excited to see her at the center of this show. And uh Yeah, and yeah. it's really fun to and and exciting to have uh you know Regina King is by no means an older woman, but she's, you know, she's a middle-aged black woman at the lead of a huge sort of not I guess it's kind of sci-fi like, yeah. it, you know, this is a very, this is a genre show and we don't, you know, that doesn't tend to happen. I mean, I guess it's happening more, more recently, you know, think about, um, the Star Trek show on CBS All Access. Like, I don't know, but like, it's just, it's just like not a role that I think, um, people that, you know, would be expected of Regina King given the work she's done, but like, it's just like, it fits also. It's, it's great. Um, and I think it's really cool that she and Lindelof clearly, uh, enjoy working together, um, because if anything else, if nothing else, Lindelof and his, the rest of his team, like, he, but, you know, they, they create really interesting things for actors to do. Yeah. And like, not only is it interesting that Regina King is at the center of this show, uh, and that is great. It's interesting because Damon Lindelof in his previous, uh, two projects, Lost and Leftovers, was fond of putting a very clear avatar for himself in the character of Jack Shepard on Lost, played by Matthew Fox, and Justin Thoreau's character on The Leftovers. These are like, these are Lindelof avatars. And there are filmmakers and, and showrunners who only know how to do that. And, um, what Lindelof said in this show, basically, you know, I'm extrapolating. I'm not, I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but he's like, what if it's not me, the center of this universe this time? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is, is a, is a, cool thing to do uh yeah and and regina king has talked about there's a scene later on in the episode where you know she her character and her husband have like um you know not not like graphic but not not graphic sex and she's like 
I've never gotten to do a sex scene like that. You know what I mean? Like Regina King, who's been in this mm-hmm. business for yeah. so long, she's like, um, I got to like kick so much ass. I got to like get really strong. I got to have this cool sex scene and I'm like a woman of color of a certain age and that's really cool for me. And so I, yeah, I think it's really cool to watch. So, you know, and just like, and the meta, the meta-ness of that is like, uh, then I think of that, like the, the little kid that the show opens on watching like this black lawman hero at the center of this, this serial film that he's watching. And it's like, okay, but that's what Watchmen's doing. It's putting this woman, this woman at the center of this story. Um, and that's, it's a very cool thing. Uh, so yeah. So she, she's giving this like, Basically, we find out that, like, all cops have to have, all like, alter egos. Like, a superhero you have to have an alter ego, and her alter ego is, like, someone who runs a bakery. Um, she's got mm-hmm. these two kids. They're white. We don't know why yet. Um, she she goes into – she grew up in uh, Vietnam, uh, before, and then we find out that Vietnam is a state, a U.S. – one of, like, the U.S. states or U.S. territories, and that's part of the, like – Watchmen alternate history, Vietnam War alternate history stuff. Um, and we find out that why cops wear masks. And it's because of this incident called White Night, uh, where a bunch of cops were targeted in their homes. And it was decided after, including Regina King's character. And so after that happened, all these cops then adopted these um, identities so that they would not be uh, vulnerable to attack um, by the criminal element. So there you go. Um, and then we have Richard, my favorite part of the whole show, which is the squid shower. Uh, I want to know what you think the squid shower is before I tell you what the squid shower is. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I guess you, you're in the Bay Area, so it doesn't happen much. But here, it rains squid all the time. Oh, so it, okay. it just felt like a, like a real slice of life kind of thing. <laughs> you know, just a little one, a little thing for New Yorkers. Um, no, I knew that there was a big squid involved in the, the graphic novel that was not used in Snyder's film. Yeah. Um, I've seen the art for it. Um, but I have questions about this because there was also, I think later in the episode, they mentioned something about interdimensional or something like that. So I'm like, okay, so tell me what's going on. Okay. So, in the original Watchmen comics, this character of Ozymandias, who is played by Jeremy Irons in this episode, um, is one of the Watchmen, and he basically creates this fake terrorist attack, essentially uh, like a 9-11 type event, in order to stop the Cold War. In order, So uh, what he comes up with is, like, we have to come up with a threat that is so out, so outside ourselves that the warring factions of the earth will put down their nuclear arms and band together against it. So he creates this like fake alien squid attack on New York. Um, and it's not fake. I mean, it's, it's not fake in that, you know, people really die. There really is a terrorist attack on New York, but like he like creates this squid to make it happen and manipulates the media to to make it all like seem like an alien invasion and it works and that's the like that's the chilling finale of watchmen is like ozymandias is the villain but is he because he stops the cold war Mm -hmm. you know uh for the greater Mm -hmm. good so uh 
what's interesting about these squid showers is it seems to me we don't we don't know this for certain but one might extrapolate that like if there was a giant squid event uh you know that that kept the world in line i mean you think about post 911 and how quick uh the us was to cede control to our government the bush administration because we were so scared Right. And you think about the Patriot Act mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like that's what it, that's what a large scale terrorist event can do. But eventually that, that phase, that fear fades, that post 9-11 fear fades. And then, you know, presidential administrations can no longer act with the carte blanche that they enjoyed, you know, immediately after. However, my guess would be that these ongoing squid showers are like a living reminder of like, don't get out of line because remember the squid, you know, remember the squid attack. So here are these squid showers. They have in this universe, they have things like squid shelters. They've got these like street cleaning trucks that we see in this episode that clean up like the squid after, you know, so it's just sort of like an ongoing reminder of remember that squid attack and remember why we all, uh, work together now. So they just believe that. A, a squiz could return and attack the earth at any moment. That's my interpretation of right. the showers. I don't know that for certain, but like, that's why I would guess there would be ongoing squid showers as a result of this, like initial fake squid attack thing. Are we all lost? Which yet? sort of brings to mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, this is Watchmen. We're not talking about last year. <laughs> What's um, left over when all, no, sorry, so, when, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which sort of brings to mind. It's some, in some sense, it's leftover squid. Um, uh, the, this kind of, this not kind of, this entirely odious notion that, it per, you know, perpetuated by conspiracy theorists about false flag operations. Yeah. You know, um, like horrible things that are staged or deliberately done in order to affect public policy or whatever. Um, I guess this is sort of a version of that. Right. So, uh, and, and what Watchmen, uh, well, what's, what's interesting about the end of Watchmen, and this is true of the Zack Snyder film as well, they don't use a giant squid. It's like a Dr. Manhattan sort of nuclear threat thing, but the, the effect is the same, which is that these, like, basically the figure of Rorschach, uh, who's played, like, I don't love the Zack Snyder film, but, uh, this character is played by Jackie Rahaley, who is great and great in that role. Um, but the character of Rorschach is basically trying to uncover the truth. And he does. He uncovers the truth about Ozymandias and this fake terrorist attack. But the other heroes, even though they agree that Ozymandias is a villain here, they see the greater good argument. And they kill Rorschach in order to keep the secret of this fake attack. It's a dark ending of the book, but it's just sort of like, for the greater good, we're going to kill this truth teller. And Rorschach is like, not the most appealing figure, but he does have the truth and wants to tell the truth. So there are these like Rorschach journals that he left behind that are discovered. And so that's sort of the idea of this Rorschach militia is that they're like, we know the truth about they're like 9-11 truthers. But what if they're right? sort of thing like we know the truth that this Mm -hmm. terrorist attack was just a ploy by the powers that be to keep us in line and we want to speak the truth they're speaking the truth is all tied up in a lot of really shitty white supremacy but like that's you know that's unsurprising to me but like you know which is again where this show courts 
I mean, it skirts a line, it crosses a line. I don't know where it's like, okay, I get like the thought experiment of subverting these tropes in our, in, in our real world and, 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 and sort of, you know, flipping our sympathies or whatever. And I, I get, it's interesting, but it's also like, is it good? Like, is there value in this kind of thought experiment? I don't know yet. I have to watch more, but like, it's just, you know, because from, from one angle, one could see this episode as being pro cop, pro truther, pro this, pro that, you know, like the, in a way that like, I don't know, um, it doesn't quite match. It doesn't at all match uh, the, the real world. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm confused and curious at the same time. <laughs> yeah. The confusion is really understandable because there's so much like, I'm only now realizing while talking to you how much like knowledge of the comics has helped me parse this in a way that if you come mm-hmm. in cold, which, you know, which they're hoping you can come in cold and still watch this, um, might be very confusing, but basically like, um, uh, yeah, these Rorschach characters are are trying to speak truth to power, but they're also the bad guys, and so it's it's confusing uh, to say the least. But um, but uh, that's what the squid showers are about. That uh, we see uh the sister night character get like a page that she has, you know, that she has to go in. Little big horn is the code, and uh, we see her go into. She basically has like a secret lair. A back cave essentially at the bottom mm-hmm. of her bakery that will never open. The bakery is called Milk in Hanoi, which I really like because she makes like Vietnamese uh, baked goods. I think that's a really charming pun name. Um, the the good place should be jealous. And uh, we see her transform in, for the first time into Sister Knight, which is this nun like this leather clad nun like figure. Um, I'm fascinated by the choice of design here because Lindelof has always been like really preoccupied with religion and what religion and faith mean to us in times of uh, extreme distress. And so the fact that this superhero cop who, you know, he beats people basically with her rosary beads, uh, you know, is this nun figure is really very fascinating to me. But basically she bops over to this uh trailer park uh slum type place called Nixonville and picks up like a person of interest and brings him in and we see him interrogated in this like sort of extreme clockwork orange esque um interrogation scene. What did you think of this um w- you know, which Tim Blake Nelson's character Looking Glass uh conducts? What did you think of this interrogation sequence? I mean, it's effectively done and it's a good sort of exposition tool without it seeming like an obvious exposition tool, you know, um, just kind of clarifying who's who and what people believe and whatnot. Um, again, I have questions about like where sympathies are supposed to lie in some ways, but, um, but you know, the, I like the way the episode, the, the episode juggles the, the, the sort of ground level, uh, not social realism, but, 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 um, the, 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 the more recognizable stuff with the sort of super, the, the comic trappings, you know, like the mirror mask and, and the nun, you know, I, I think that I, I, I buy the texture of the world so far, which I think is crucial to this kind of thing. We go really quickly from that to, um, and you know, the thing is, is like, I think Watchmen is asking us to engage in something truly, truly complicated, which are, mm-hmm. which is there are no 
institutional good guys and bad guys. Because when we right. see these interrogation tactics, both in the room and then in the like beating that happens after, that's a poli- police brutality that, that the, the yeah. episode's not asking you to ignore. And so I don't, I, I think despite the fact that like, um, there are care, cop characters who might have our sympathy from time to time, it's not really anointing them as like, here are the heroes and the white supremacists um terrorists are the bad guys i mean i'm not sure we're gonna like meet a sympathetic terrorist but i'm just saying like i don't think they're saying like cops are good uh at all uh, especially with this interrogation so um but we go to this cattle ranch um uh, you know, the, the, the cops that we've been following are trying to nab these terrorists. There's a lot of, uh, cow violence, uh, Gatling gun on cow violence. Um, and mm-hmm. then we see, we have, um, Chief Judd and, uh, this character who's called, I think, Pirate Jenny. Yeah, Pirate Jenny flying. Uh, we see Judd and this character, Pirate Jenny, flying something from the comic book, uh, called, Archie Archimedes. It's this owl ship that Night Owl flew in the comics. Um, and they crash and, and, uh, Chief Judd comes. I mean, like, it all works out kind of in their favor in the end. Um, but almost as if by accident. And the ship is destroyed and Judd comes out and he's like laughing hysterically. And later we see him like, taking drugs and so i was just sort of like how mm-hmm. like how in control of the situation was he you know is my question so right yeah yeah um and then we cut over to jeremy Irons. this is an, this like even i with my like attempted deep bench of comic knowledge even i was like a little uh unsure of what to make of this jeremy Irons sequence jeremy Irons, once again as as i mentioned is playing the character of ozymandias though he's not explicitly called that uh yet uh, he's got these two servants who call him master, uh, and they, they have a cake for him. And then he says he's making, he's what, he's writing a play, a tragedy in five acts, and he's calling it the watchmaker's son. The character of Dr. Manhattan from the original comics is a watchmaker's son. So that's a, that's a, I like, I wonder if his character is going to be writing the story of Watchmen would be kind of my, and guess. we saw yeah all the stuff with the watches at the, Right, they're using the white supremacist compound. Using watch batteries. So yeah, tick 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 tick. It's a thing, you know. It's a thing. This is just so leftovers to me. It's a thing that is like confusing and disparate, and will probably all coalesce uh, in mm-hmm. in a way that will make sense. But we'll have to navigate a lot of confusing things to get there. Like I don't know who these servant characters are. I don't know why they seem like like enthralled. Uh, almost with the Jeremy Irons character. Um, so I don't quite know, uh, what's going on there, but, uh, stay tuned to find out. Um, mm-hmm. and then we, we cut back to this dinner scene, uh, with, uh, Angela's family and, and Chief Judd's family. And like I said, he's snorting, snorting, uh, some sort of drug. And then we get our third Oklahoma reference. Uh, what do you think of this musical musical table number? I mean, it was good, and you know, Don Johnson's having an interesting right little year, yeah, with this and and, Knives and out. Knives out. Yeah, 
Um, but yeah, it was, I was just so tense watching it because I was positive that like bullets were going to come raining in through the windows or something. Like I, 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 I didn't think that, that this like happy moment would, would be allowed to just exist. And then it kind of was, I mean, obviously it led to, I mean, something bad happened later, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was again, you know, Lindelof doing something weird that has, you know, just sort of on his mind or, or whatever. And, 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 but sort of threading it thematically in and, uh, you know, I think it was a good way to get us to like, uh, Don Johnson's character only to see him leave us <laughs> shortly thereafter. Yeah. He's so good here. And like he has, I don't, I don't think that I knew that he had such a good singing voice, but he has this lovely singing voice. Uh, we should say the actress Frances Fisher is playing the great Frances Fisher playing his wife. Um, mm-hmm. and I just, I, I loved this sequence. It, it is very tense. There's, there's some great stylistic stuff. There's great stylistic stuff throughout. Um, but the overhead shot of the table, like through the light fixture or whatever, and you see it's like, it's supposed to look like a clock, I think is what we're supposed to take from it or whatever. Um, there's a couple overhead shots that are just like really cool and stylish. And yeah, it's very, it's very tense. This scene, uh, it's enjoyable and tense at the same time. So, um, and you know, and then we, we get, um, you know, his, I mean, I'll just cut to it, right? Like his death shortly thereafter, the, the mm-hmm. certainty that he was going, I like, it wasn't like a shocking reveal to me at the end. Like I was certain he was going to die. Like I think 15 minutes before the end of the episode, I was like this, he's not making it through this. And oh my God, they're going to kill Don Johnson. And what a cool, like, not, I don't know, you know, beheading of Ned Stark moment sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so Don Johnson doesn't make it through the episode. He's lynched. Um, Angela's called out by this, uh, shadowy figure that we met early in the episode played by Lewis Gossett Jr. We don't know who he is. He seems to know a lot about her. Um, and he leads her to a lynched, uh, Chief Judd and Judd, uh, you know, the, the song Poor Judd is Dead, which the lyric that started the episode, uh, is from, uh, sung by the great Gordon McRae. Uh, plays as the episode goes out. So that is the first episode of Watchmen. There's a few other things that I, I want to talk about, um, before we get into like our larger, larger, larger episode impressions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, uh, this idea of the meta show within the show, uh, which is called American Hero Story, uh, American Hero Story colon Minutemen and Nicole Castle, who directed this episode did confirm to me that a, yes, that is a Ryan Murphy, uh, intentional Ryan Murphy reference and B they had Ryan Murphy's blessing to do it. Uh, basically. So they're, they're doing American horror story, but it's called American hero story. And they are, you know, this show, which we see advertised throughout the episode, the show within the show, uh, is telling the story of the Minutemen and the Minutemen in the original Watchmen comics are the, are the heroes that came before the Watchmen, the original heroes. Um, it doesn't take, their story is not really, it's in the book and it's not in the book, but it's basically like the before the Watchmen, there were the Minutemen. And that's what this fictional story within the story is going to tell us. And so like, let's just, let's just unpack this for a second. Uh, Lindelof is giving us the Watchmen that takes place in the alternative now through this mm-hmm. American hero story TV show. That's within the TV show. He's going to tell the story of the Minutemen, which includes characters that we're familiar with, like the comedian, 
um and the original night owl and um silk specter and stuff like that okay so that that's um that's the Minutemen. and then i i'm convinced that ozymandias is going to be writing a play that is the story of the watchman that alan moore did <laughs> so Minutemen. Mm, okay. Uh, like a, a TV series and then a TV series about the Minutemen and then a play about the Watchmen written by the Ozymandias character and then the current Watchmen. And I think those are the like Russian nesting dolls of story that Lindelof intends to dish up to us this season. And um will it be coherent? I don't know. Will it be like st- stylish and really like fascinating and i can't stop watching it absolutely yes um but you know that describes i think a lot of the leftovers as well so um and i love that show so there you go so are there watch people (laughs) (laughs) is angela like how big of a figure is she or is she just kind of a local version of this so she strikes me as like uh you know the most impress his like second in command almost is what she sort of feels like right um but just yeah in tulsa but not nationally but but the what the the watchman initiative as it pertains to the cops like basically i think the detectives dress in these like fanciful costumes and then the cops just Mm -hmm. wear those like yellow masks and uniforms you know right um And so I think that this is just the roster of characters. You know, we, we, there's a few. There's the Pirate Jenny one. There's the Panda one. There's, uh, the one that I love called Red Scare, which is that guy in like the red tracksuit. Uh, and then there's Looking Glasses played by Tim Blake Nelson. Um, to name just a few that are the Tulsa folk. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, um, very, very sweet, but, you know, sort of like dirtbag lefty boys that I was friends with at the end of high school. Um, one of them had a, had this like sh- terrible, like broken down, uh, car that he would drive around. Then it was red and he called it the red scare. <laughs> he was a, a burgeoning Marxist. It was, I love that. It was funny. Anyway. At, one, at one point in the episode, we hear, uh, Judd on the phone with a character, uh, I think he called, he refers to him as Senator Keene and we hear a snippet on the radio. And this is a character played by, uh, James Wolk, aka, uh, Bob Benson from Mad Men. Um, and the Keene act, aka King of TV pilots. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the lead of Zoo. Um, Senator Keene, the Keene act, um, is the act that, um, outlawed vigilante, um, crime fighters. Um, mm. they, I think they refer to him as Joe Jr. So I think he's like the son of the senator who put that, um, thing into motion. But so we're going to see some government stuff, I, I imagine, uh, if James Wolk, uh, is playing this senator figure. So that's, you know, there's some stuff, there's plenty of stuff that we have yet to see, plenty of surprises to come, uh, plenty of expansion of the universe. But, um, I don't know, like, what would you recommend, um, you know, if you're talking to friends who haven't read the source material, like, how would you recommend they navigate something this dense? Would you say just like, just go with it and roll with it? I mean, like, I'll just, I'll answer really quickly. I kind of would, after the leftovers, I kind of would. I would say trust in Lindelof that you're going to get to a place that's going to feel emotionally worth it and coherent enough uh, you know, that, that your initial confusion will have been worth it. Um, but what do you feel about it, Richard? 
Well, I mean, it is tricky because we we sort of forget that the first season of The Leftovers it happened before the second, you know, because like the second season was really where it really like just went off on its own wonderful, beautiful, crazy tangent. Um, so we at least had those first episodes, which were a little bit more straightforward, at yes. least to kind of ease That's us in, true. whereas this is just dropping us right in. Um, you know, yes, it is a lot to ask of peak, you know, in this peak TV time. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you were a fan of leftovers, uh, cl- clearly the, you know, loyalty is rewarded. Um, you know, I think the bigger thing is like, if this sort of subject matter and this political discourse is one that you want to sort of see through. Like, I, I think that's a sort of trickier question to answer. Um, you know, on first watching this episode, I was sort of texting with a friend who'd seen it and I was like, what the hell is this? Like, is this saying that like, if, you know, black Americans are given a certain degree of power and reparations that everything descends into chaos. Because if so, that's like basically what people who white people who warn about like a race war yeah. say, you know, I'm like, well, fuck that ideology, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, I sort of slept on it and then talking it through with you. I'm like, you know, okay. Like I, I, I guess, I, you know, I, I, there, there, there's enough intrigue here where, and I don't think that Lindelof or Nicole Castle or anyone involved is coming at it from any sort of supportive stance, you know, any of this kind of bad stuff. So I, but the, yeah, again, there's enough intrigue here where I'm like, okay, I'm curious to see what they do with this very, very tricky, um, you know, sort of what ifing that the show is doing. I both admire and I'm worried for Lindelof in that, in this, because I admire the ambition of what, and what he wants to do, I think genuinely comes from a place of trying to grapple with our, our current landscape, our president, our, our fractured nation, all of that through the lens of Watchmen. I think that that's a really brilliant thing to do, right? Cause he's just sort of like, he, uh, something that we haven't mentioned actually is that in this alternative universe, cell phones like, don't exist, which is a very convenient, uh, narrative device. Yeah. Um, but, um, that, uh, you know, he, he's like, okay, if Alan Moore wanted to grapple with like Nixon and Reagan and the Vietnam War and the Cold War, like I want to grapple with like Trump and, you know, um, the emboldened, latent, but always there fascistic sort of, um, white supremacy in America and all that sort of stuff. That's what he wants to do through the lens of Watchmen. And I think that that is an, an admirable thing to want to take on. I think it's a thing that is really, uh, could easily be misinterpreted. And, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so I worry that he will be misinterpreted and I, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I understand why some other people might be like, I, my life's too short to give this person the benefit of the doubt. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. That's, that's the, the, the real thing it has to combat. It's not may, maybe not so much, oh, this is terrible and blah, blah, you know, offensive or whatever. And, and, and may, and, you know, and that's not to minimize offense, you know, anyone who feels, um, like really put off by this and, and, and offended, but, um, it, it could also just be like the, the, the fight is like just that kind of TV inertia at this point, you know, like, like did this episode do enough to hook people? I think there are enough kind of things dangled that, that it, it seems interesting. Um, you know, I think, you know, unfortunately this is the only scheduled episode we have about this show, but like, you know, I think it might merit revisiting later on, like maybe at a finale or some point, but like, um, because I'm, I am curious to see where this is headed. 
Yeah, uh, I'd like because to, they set up so much. Yeah, I'd like to leave the door open for us to to possibly do that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And yeah, and and that's the thing is like when when the Confederate thing was announced, the Weiss and Benioff uh, Confederate thing, um, the premise alone made people go like, uh, no, thank you, right? But more right. than that, when, when people are pushing back and being like, how dare you judge a thing when you haven't seen it yet? I'm like, on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, like, I've seen Weiss and Benio, <laughs> right? And so like, right. and I've seen like, you know, I don't think they're racist guys, but I think they have certain, like, I think they have tunnel vision, uh, and, and, and just tone deafness sometimes when it comes to that kind of stuff as evidence through some of the choices made on Game of Thrones. And so that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's what's informing my decision to not want to see that. Uh, in that same vein, Lindelof's previous work is what is informing me to want to watch The Watchmen. So, you know. Um, yeah. he has earned for me, he has earned that benefit of the doubt. If he hasn't for other people, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with that. Um, and that is where we are with Watchmen. Uh, let us go now, uh, shall we to our conversation with the great Tim Blake Nelson, who is not only part of Watchmen, as I said, uh, but he's in two, uh, this is a little, little Goldman crossover, two award season ish movies, uh, Just Mercy and The Report. And, uh, you know, so, so great time for my guy, Tim Blake Nelson, who I've been a huge fan of ever since. Oh, brother, where art thou? Let us go. Now to that chat. Hello. Hi there, Joanna. We are going to talk about the report, Just Mercy and Watchmen all together, if that's okay with you. Sure. Kicking off with your character, Looking Glass, who has this great... Um, look to him. I'm wondering if you can talk uh, about what the, what the masks, what the idea of wearing a mask means to your character emotionally, um, in the show. Like a lot of the characters in the uh, original Watchmen and also Damon Lindelof's imagination of that world's future, which is now our present, looking glass is informed by trauma in his own life and trauma in his present life and how these commingle. And the answer is in part concealment. And in Looking Glass's case, this involves a measure of hiding from his self, which is ironic because his mask would seem to indicate the opposite. Right. Since it's a mirror. Right. And that's where one goes for literally for reflection. But this is a character who has no mirrors in his house. And that's a decision that Damon and I made. Or no, just Damon. That Damon <laughs> Damon made early on. I, I, actually, I, I will say that he made it. I, now that I'm remembering it, it was actually he who had that idea. Um, and so Looking Glass is a character who goes beyond the opacity of a mask and sends curiosity back at the viewer. Yeah, I like that. In the form of the viewer's own reflection. I know that you've said that Damon, uh, you know, originally talked to you about this role, said maybe the role was too small for an actor of your caliber, and then decided to expand the role and, and bring you in anyway. In expanding the role, did he work collaboratively with you at all? Did you get to have input on what the expansion would look like? For- Just to make it clear so that you don't mischaracterize, um, 
I never said an actor of my caliber. No, no, no. He said he said. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll put uh, it in his 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 mouth. Yes. He just said, um, uh, "This might be too small for you," and I'll let that mean what it means. Sure. But um, and and then he and, and he gave it a think, and and came back to me and said, "I'm reimagining who and what this guy is in the story, and I think it might interest you." more than I did a few days ago. But but in that in that expansion then did was there any form of collaboration between the two of you did you get to put to have any input on the shape of Looking Glass? This isn't unique to me. The way Damon works is that he leaves a good deal open for himself so that he can allow what actors bring to inform how they're going to inflect the trajectory of a season. And so, yes, uh, a a lot of what he and the writers imagined was the result of how I was answering the challenges episode by episode. That's true about all of us, not unique to me. You know, I think that 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 was true uh, uh, with Regina, with Yaya, with Jean, and with Hong. When he when when he wrote episode, when th- th- they didn't know what was going to happen in episode five, when we were, you know, I I, I think uh, the first I started hearing about episode five was I think episode three. During episode three, they were they were really putting it together. Now that may be simply when I was hearing about it, and they. They they had notions before then, but I can absolutely tell you that once he decided that I was going to that that there would be enough for me to do uh, to where he wanted me to play the role, I was presented with a notion that ended up being completely different from what they ultimately provided oh. as Looking Glasses, as they call it, origin story. But typical of Damon, you know, I. And I, don't, I like this, actually. I'm not complaining. I think it's interesting. It's a really interesting way to work. I started to build the character based on that knowledge, that understanding. Right. And then sometime around the, you know, during the pilot, he said, I don't think we're going to do that anymore. And of course, then I thought, well, my God, then I failed him because I'm not playing the character he wrote. And so then he came up with, I think, what's probably better for the story as a whole, because it's a more it's a more understandably pervasive and universal fear that this guy is traumatized by having been there on, you know, when the squid attack happened. The, right. the big one. Right. Well, what's what's interesting to me about that, um, about your character's involvement with the squid attack. So this squid attack, which closes out the original Watchmen story, which was written in the 80s. But as we understand that squid attack on New York now, it is like it makes a perfect, uh, to use an uncomfortable word, perfect 9-11 metaphor for us, right? Well, that's what he's intending because it's 9-12 or something. Like yeah. 2-11 or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then you're, um, and then you've got this, um, this great part in the film, the report, uh, which is coming out, uh, in, on November 15th, uh, which also deals with sort of our psychic wound around nine 11. And so given that you were sort of involved in both of these properties, I was wondering what, what thoughts you've been having on, on that trauma kind of trauma specifically and, and how we talk about it. 
I certainly didn't set out uh, a year ago when I was working on these projects uh, to self-importantly to address uh, uh, um, national trauma or some sort of geopolitical interstice that we experienced around 9-11 and, and, uh, and, and its aftermath. And, you know, of course, 9-11 is my generation's Pearl Harbor in a certain sense. So, but where, where I do, and, and where I think it's a, actually quite a good question, um, is that what I, what I do look for are projects that are going to be made by storytellers who have um, an almost dowser sense of what's relevant. And Damon Lindelof and Scott Z. Burns and, and, and Steven Soderbergh as well, who produced, um, and, and Jennifer Fox, who produced the report, as well as Destin Daniel Cretton, um, they, they, they all share that. And I was lucky enough to be offered roles of varying sizes uh, <laughs> in their projects. And um, there was no way I was going to turn down those opportunities. And when I do turn down movies, it's often because they don't feel um, current or uniquely visionary or challenging in ways that feel irresistible. Well, you talked about the uh, irresistible challenge of working, uh, you know, with with let's say Dustin Daniel Cretton on Just Mercy. I want to ask you an actor craft question, if I can, which is in that film you're playing uh, the real life figure of Ralph Myers, who has, um, you know, mm-hmm. slight physical disfigurement from a traumatic thing that happened to him when he was a child, and uh, which means that you have the actorly challenge of composing your face in a certain way uh, in every mm-hmm. single scene. And I was wondering if you could talk about the challenge of that and the challenge of, of acting with a mask on, like both of, both acting with a mask on in Washman and this, this facial mask that you yourself create with your, with your own face. Uh, it just, just seems the, these, these things feel like, uh, interesting challenges. And I was wondering if you could talk about them. One thing I, I believe I do better now as an actor than I used to is that I take my time in ways that weren't always that in, in ways that weren't always the case. And so finding out how to get to and at and, and ultimately find Ralph Myers uh, was a process that, that that began really about uh, I, I think probably six to eight weeks before I started shooting. Um, and, and and that involved just allowing him to seep into me without ever trying him on for a good month. And so I literally spent time several hours a day with the script and with the videotape, video uh, material I had of him. And whereas in the past, I immediately would have jumped in to try to, to, um, find that in an, in a, in a, um, uh, an immediately imitative way. Uh, I just let him in more, um, so that, so that I could work from the inside out in ways that I 
don't always feel that I have. And it's just, it's just, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I'm 55 now, and and uh, I really started taking at it, acting seriously when I went to drama school at age 22. So that's a long time. That's mm-hmm. that's over 30 years now, and um, I, I just, I've I found that impatience and a lack of faith that I would get there caused me to act, to work in a more superficial um, in, in indicative way. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be indicative. Um, uh, that, that went from the outside in. And so really finding this Ralph Myers character was, was ultimately about having the confidence and the patience to know that I'd get there and not have to find him immediately. And so I started playing around with it and, uh, you know, about a month in and for two weeks I, talked with um, the makeup artist back and forth about it. And he's a guy named David Atherton with whom I've worked for, I think a dozen, I've I've worked with him about a dozen times now. And so we got down to, um, to Georgia at my request um, to, to Destin a little over a week early. It's a minimal approach. Um, Basically he's done the burns on my face, but there's no, the lip is all just done from the inside out. Um, you know, uh, and because I've been working on it for such a long time for most of the time, I think it looks pretty natural, but it just allowed for finding it naturally in collaboration with a really good makeup artist for the burns and with Destin, um, with Watchmen, you know, I guess again, it starts with Damon, not me. Uh, he wrote a really interesting character, just that, that was already there in the pilot. Just that mask alone is so intriguing. Why would a guy choose this um, face-forming, almost li- liquefied mirror of a mask on his face? Uh, the most opaque mask in the show. Who's who's resolutely of the place in which the show is is set. He is an Oki. You're an Oki. <laughs> right. Uh right. and there was you know, down to the handlebar bar mustache. He's right. also an incredibly laconic character. And so what I found most interesting in in working on Looking Glass actually is how it juxtaposed the the playing of it juxtaposed um with working on masks in drama school. Yeah. Because in drama school, you end up doing, you, you end up having these, uh, uh, doing mask work. And the purpose of mask work, or a purpose of mask work, is to hobble you as an actor so that you can only use your voice and your body and not your face. And, that usually results in amplification of your remaining, um, you know, what remains of your 
apparatus. Uh, so it means more movement often, and it means uh, more nuance in your voice, and usually often because mass classes rely often on improvisation if you're uh, speaking from behind the mask or if you're wearing a half mask. Um, more uh, text. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, louder, faster, funnier with the voice and bigger with the body. What I found with Looking Glass is that is that when I put the mask on, and I, I think, again, because I just slowed myself down in terms of the work, I found that my impulses were going in the opposite direction, and so that he becomes more still with the mask and quieter with the mask, mm. more laconic. Um, and that that just that really surprised me. Um, and I think it ultimately has to do with how, for each character in the show, the mask empowers us mm. because with the anonymity, um, you can get away with more. And because so much of you becomes inscrutable, people are more afraid of you and they yield status to you. And that just happened immediately in scenes and I found myself having to do less as a character. Whereas, again, in mass class back at Juilliard, one always felt the impulse to do more without the face. I also went to a bit of theater school and I did some mask work. And my memory of the masks is that, you know, we would use these like sort of thick spandex sort of mask things. And my memory is that uh it smelled awful and was deeply uncomfortable inside those masks. Um, did, did, what was your, what was it like wearing your mask on Watchmen? I'll tell you this, they, they had, so Damon and, and Nikki, uh, and again, I showed up early because I just, one of the benefits of this on Watchmen was a, a discussion early on about five days before we started shooting with Damon and Nikki about the, um, shooting strategy with the digital effects folks on the floor when they were shooting with the different types of masks I would wear. And so they said there are going to be three different types. There's going to be a green screen and sometimes fractal mask made of cloth. And you'll be able to see through that. There's going to be a cloth reflective mask with... Uh, um, so, uh, little fine, uh, very fine reflective scales, basically is what it was, but that will fit as a like cloth over your face. And then we're going to use for wider shots, we're going to have a hard plastic mask that is entirely reflective that you'll wear. That will, for which there will have to be no digital work. It's just going to be a hard plastic reflective mask. Um, and so I said, and they said, and, and then they said, and you're going to have to wear a camera on a crown, a GoPro oh. on a crown. 
when you wear the green and fractal masks so that we have an image um, to project digitally onto the green or fractal mask in post. And so all of that really interested me. I, I said, that sounds really, you know, that uh, fascinating as a process. And whatever it does to me as an actor, I'm open for it because it'll just, if, if it, it will only be interesting. Right. Yeah. The worst it'll be is interesting. And interesting if you allow it to can inform a performance in surprising ways. Uh, so that was all great, except for that hard mask. And I, I was given the hard mask during the, for the first shot on the first day of shooting, which for me was a night shoot, which we started at around midnight and was going to go most of the rest of the night, you know, toward dawn. And it was a scene with Don Johnson in the hospital in the pilot. Mm -hmm. And I put that hard mask on and I could neither move my head nor see my scene partner. Uh. And, um, I just, I found it untenable. Yeah. Uh, I just couldn't do my job. Yeah. And I'm a don't complain, don't explain actor. And for, I think, the first time in my career, I said, I can't, this is too much. I can't, I can't see Don. So I'm just sort of acting in, you know, I don't feel like I'm able to connect with my scene partner, which, which serves neither of us. Uh, and I also, can't really move. I can't move my head. It's just too constricting. Uh, and so that was the last I ever, that, I, so I never again had to wear that mask. Okay. Um, and the production had to, you know, they, they, they adapted. Um, Otherwise, it was great. You know, it was all it was all good. Um, I could always see through the cloth masks, okay. and the wearing of the cameras, although sometimes a bit um, uh, uh, cumbersome. Uneasy lies the crown. Uh, I, you know, um, it was really interesting to be part of the filmmaking apparatus. Yeah. So you know, to be this this person filming others it's this it, it 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 i kept thinking of it as this other version of a body cam um in scenes and internalizing that helped with the character in 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 a strange way uh because looking glass is at least in his own mind recording the responses of others to determine what they're really up to behind the facade of their own faces. Right. I, what, that's another interesting, possibly coincidental, probably coincidental, uh, connecting theme through these three projects, uh, is this idea of interrogation, lie detection, truth telling, uh, you can sort of mm -hmm. get it across all three, just mercy, the report and this. And once again, I know that that's probably coincidence, but I'm wondering, um, you know, since you are immerse yourselves in these three projects, what thoughts you had had about this theme of interrogation? 
I do feel, as I know Damon does, um, that the masks in Watchmen are an apt metaphor for the mask of our faces. And humans lie to each other. We dissemble, we conceal, we, for the most part, tell the truth only when it advances our own interests. And I think that the most truthful people understand that being a truth teller or an honest person advances his or her own interests long term. And that's why trustworthy people are valued. And that can be seen by anyone as a as an advantage. We all want to be valued. There's a premium on truth. And it's generally rewarded if we find others to be trustworthy. Right. And where we get into trouble is by deceiving ourselves into thinking that it's that that the short term advantages of lying or concealing uh, are long-term advantages. And for the most part, they aren't. But at the same time, I think, you know, I agree with that guy, um, Yuval Noah Harari, I think is his name, who wrote Sapiens. Mm. Uh, We're also advantaged um, as a species by bending the truth by gossiping (laughs) by, you know, the societal protections of courtesies when maybe we don't necessarily mean it. So it suddenly gets very complicated, but generally that premium on the truth, I think does obtain in how we relate to one another um, and what we value uh, in our long-term lives and our long-term interactions. Uh, And all of these projects, I mean, I think all three of these projects uh, examine that ideal in one way or another. In Watchmen, there's, I think, an unambiguous pursuit of of, of how the revelation of truth and the solving and of mystery and ex, an exposure of of mystery is ultimately for all of our benefit right. and what's interesting about watchmen is that the the main weapon in that pursuit is uh, concealment and vigilantism and a lot of extrajudicial behavior right Right. And I think that the and I think that the I think that the show is um, admirably quite honest in um, in showing uh, you know how that uh, how that afflicts the very flawed people who are wearing these masks and pursuing justice. Do you feel that that sort of dogged pursuit of truth, that the truth, the truth will inevitably be better for us no matter the consequences sort of thing. Um, is that a response to the ending of the original book, which is a lie told for the greater good? Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, is it a lie? So he drops a squid on New York, right? Right. And and he, I, I think what he does is, you know, the squid is not a lie. It happens. Vite allows it to be interpreted in the most likely but still false way. Because who would ever think that this was anything but some sort of an extraterrestrial force for which humanity needed to band together? (laughs) Uh, He calls it a hoax. Uh I believe Damon has him call it a hoax. I'm not sure he calls it a hoax in Alan Moore's text. I'm not that. I, I'm I'm not the Maimonides of uh, <laughs> the original Watchmen, um, but uh, um, so but yeah, I mean I I suppose it's an answer to that, and I'm you know again just I think some lies are probably salutary, and we probably lie to ourselves every day just to just get through our days without, you know, taking everything in our wallet and going down to the nearest homeless encampment and just giving everything away and all our justifications and think we're leading decent lives when every fucking one of us is implicated um, in some sort of injustice. And again, I think that's what Damon's examining with the masks in Watchmen. Because the the masks allow, just in that first episode, Angela Abar to to, to Sister Knight to go into that to Nixonville, grab a guy without due process. We shove him into this pod, and then beat the shit out of him so that we can find out where the bad guys are hiding. There are no Miranda rights. Right, uh, etc. And I'm I I think that the masks allow that to happen. And Damon isn't afraid to show that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We're vigilantes. Um, that's what that's what Agent that's what Lori Blake says. Right. What's the difference? Right. Um, yeah. So my last question for you, you like someone only has to talk to you for two seconds to know how brilliant you are. Um, that I'm a pseudo intellectual. That no, that you're an intellectual intellectual. <laughs> but but when, I I thought it was interesting reading the original character description um, of your of your character in Watchmen. It's uh, there was something about how uh, you know basically his oaky accent belies his intelligence. And so I was wondering, you know, you've got this like beautiful accent, um, and I'm wondering. You know, if you've, if people have made assumptions about you based on where in the country you come from, based on your accent, if you can extrapolate that to your Watchmen character. Did you grow up in the Bay Area or did you grow up in the middle of the country? I I grew up in the Bay Area. I am afflicted as, uh, is much of my generation and, and people from California with saying like and you know a lot. And I know that people definitely make assumptions about my intelligence based on the way that I speak. So I think people just have their ideas about... That has not, have. by the way, struck me during this conversation. <laughs> okay. That has not struck me during this conversation. I've not noticed you littering any of your speech <laughs> with likes and you knows. And I'm with three sons. Uh, I'm quite sensitive to that. <laughs> Uh, so you've concealed it well in this conversation. Um, 
when I went to college, I particularly East Coasters could tend to look down on on those of us from the middle of the country, but that abated pretty quickly. I don't really feel I've been disadvantaged by coming from Oklahoma in terms of people's perceptions. Just speaking directly to your question, and this is going to sound disingenuous, but I actually really mean it. Everybody is smarter than everybody else. You just have to find the right (laughs) topic or area. Anybody who doesn't understand that is a moron. There's something to learn really from every single person. Uh, And that more than anything has been part of my life's pursuit. And it's one of the reasons I like acting is to try on these other people who know more than I do about certain topics, can do stuff that I can't do, can feel in ways that I can't or haven't yet, and to challenge myself in in pursuit of those experiences. And that can mean learning to play the guitar so that I can be Buster Scruggs or, or, or learn to um, spin pistols. Uh, if you play a mechanic, you can learn about a car engine. With Watchmen, what's it like to wear a mask? Because if you don't, you could be identified and people and 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 you might get assassinated you yeah. you might get murdered and you know all that stuff it's interesting to explore these characters what would it be like to have seen waterboarding to understand that it breaks international law and flouts everything that america is supposed to stand for and live with that until you can't and so you blow the whistle from that you know that that way of 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 uh from that way of thinking um and from other people having that way of thinking because i don't believe that this is a unique point of view uh i really haven't felt that disadvantage for me to say i'm disadvantaged about any damn thing is would be ridiculous <laughs> I'm not even sure that I was angling after disadvantage. It's more like it can almost be an advantage to have people underestimate you in any given situation, think something of you, and then you have an opportunity to surprise or dazzle them, you know? So that was sort of more what I was thinking of. But I, I suppose that's some, that, yeah, I, I'll tell you. So I'm Jewish, and but my name is Tim Blake Nelson, and I wear, play all these hick roles, but mm-hmm. I'm. I'm very I'm Jewish. Jewish actually uh, we did um ancestry.com and I'm 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. Uh-huh. Uh but what but since I have this name and I'm from Oklahoma and I play these roles I hear a lot of anti-Semitism because nobody fucking thinks I'm Jewish. And all you have uh-huh. to do is read on the internet. I don't hide it. Yeah. Um and that's been interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think thematically to what Watchmen is dealing with, which is uncovering some of these unsavories, uh, I think that that is definitely relevant. And I'm sorry that you've had to experience that. Oh, it's nothing. Well, thank you. Thank you for your, for your very thoughtful um, answers. I really, really appreciate the chat very much. Oh, you bet. So we are taking a break next week. We have no episode scheduled for still watching next week. So enjoy the week off. And then we will be back the following week to discuss the first episode of His Dark Materials, uh, the HBO adaptation of the Philip Pullman uh, trilogy. 
And uh, we this is a Monday show for HBO. So our episode of Still Watching will come out, um, I believe, on that Monday, the 4th. So you can look for the next episode of Still Watching on November the 4th. Um, and until then, Richard, where can folks find you? I'm just going to be hiding behind a cow, hoping to make it through the night, honestly. Uh, and while I'm there, I'll be tweeting from Rylaws and writing at BF.com. Where will you be doing uh, I will be sheltering under an umbrella, avoiding the latest squid storm. Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this for my squid updates, or you can listen to us both on the podcast, Little Gold Men, or you can find us on VanityFair.com, and we will see you for His Dark Materials in November.